Well, good morning, everyone. As you know, we are in the season of Lent, that season of the church where we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. And this year, if you've been with us, you know that to guide our time, we are reading a few passages that deal with the wilderness. And there are many wilderness passages. And this is an appropriate thing to do because just as Lent is 40 days, so often the wilderness is connected with either 40 days or or 40 years, if you will. And as we read these passages, you realize that the wilderness isn't just simply a place that surrounds civilization, that hems it in. No, it's a place of self-reflection and testing and trouble and repentance. It's a place of renewal and new beginnings and I think most of all, grace. And that's certainly true of our passage today as we look at King David's, well he's not king yet, but his encounter with King Saul from 1 Samuel 26. Now we had a little mix up, that's all right, uh, with the passage itself. And so I'm going to begin with the part of the passage that isn't in your program. So I'm just going to encourage you to listen and follow along with me. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 21. And here's what we read when we begin in verse 6. It says, Then David said to Himelech the Hittite and to Joab brother, Joab's brother Abishai, he said, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemies into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David cried out to the army. And as you see in verse 17, Saul heard him. And then verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. 
You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord given for our benefit. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, bless this time. May your word come alive to us. And may you teach us what each one of us needs to hear today. You are a great God and you can do that. So Lord, bless each and every one of us. And make this time, I pray, of great value. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you feel about waiting? I mean, do you just enjoy a good, long wait? I know I do. I mean, nothing makes me happier than to get at a coffee shop and to see four or five people ahead of me in the line. I just love that. Or go to Costco at just the right time when the line at the gas pump is now streaming out into the parking lot. Or when you're at the grocery store and the person in front of you has decided that this is the exact moment where they need to tell someone about everything, every detail that has happened to them that day. Or maybe, and this may be a little dated, that feeling I used to get when I'd go to the doctor's hour and that glorious hour that I would wait with only that five-year-old copy of Time magazine on the desk. Oh, it was glorious. Well, not really, unless you think I am insane. The truth is, I hate to wait, and I know I am not unique. I'm guessing, because I don't think I've ever met a person who likes to wait. I'm guessing that's true of every person in this room. And I also realize that what I've described here are just the common, everyday kind of waits that we put up with, that annoy us, but we put up with. But there's another kind of waiting that every breathing human being knows about, a more serious and difficult kind of waiting, a kind of waiting that isn't just annoying, but often soul-crushing. There's the waiting of the single person to see if God has marriage in store for him or her. There's the waiting of the couple who so desperately wants a child, and yet day after day, week after week, they wait. There's the person who just wants a job that's significant and meaningful and rewarding, and yet it seems never to come. And there's the waiting of a spouse who's hurting in a broken marriage that seems incapable of being fixed. This is the kind of waiting Lewis Schmieds describes when he says, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Folks, we're going to look today at what I believe is one of the hardest things God asks us to do as human beings. And unfortunately, it's one of the things that the wilderness thrusts upon us. In fact, I might go so far as to say it's one of the things that make the wilderness actually the wilderness. I'm talking about waiting on God. And that's what this story has at its heart. I mean, let's look at it. The story is the entire chapter. I only read a part of it. But in first chapter 26, we have what scholars refer to as David's wilderness period. And in fact, our writer, 
this morning doesn't want us to miss that. We didn't read it, but in the first three verses, four times the translation makes it clear that David is in the wilderness. There's some translations put it, David is in the desert. And the wilderness for Israel is the desert. And it's meant to convey that it is an inhospitable place. Hot, dry, barren, without life without natural shelter, without the means to support life. It's a place that no one wants to spend their life. No one even wants to spend a little time there. And yet here it is that we find David. And the question has to be asked, why? And it's here where we need a little context. Here's where we need to understand that at God's direction, Samuel, the last judge of Israel has anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And it's a wonderful thing, but it brings about a problem because there already is an anointed king of Israel, a king on the throne, a man by the name of Saul who wants his reign to continue for a long, long time. And he wants his son to inherit his reign. But unfortunately, Saul, because of his blatant and continued disobedience, has been rejected by God. And that's why God commanded Samuel to anoint David as Saul's replacement. And so here we have the obvious narrative tension. The tension of David's story throughout 1 Samuel. And this is the fundamental question. How and when is David going to ascend to the throne? Now Saul, of course, knows about David. And he's envious and afraid of him. And so he decides to do the one thing that makes sense to him. He decides to kill him. And that drives David into the wilderness. And now we find him and he's basically on the run. He's driven from his home. He has nowhere to lay his head. He's literally a fugitive. Surrounded by family and a few of his trusted friends. And throughout the last chapters of 1 Samuel... What we have is Saul constantly trying to find out where David is located in the wilderness so that he can go there and kill him. And now we learn in chapter 26 that he's finally got some intelligence about exactly where David is going to be. And so he handpicks 3,000 of his best men and they set out after David. And that's where our reading begins. Because it says one night when they arrive at that location, they set up camp. And while the men were asleep, we learn that David also has some spies. He also has some intelligence. And he sets up a plan. Because he knows that Saul sleeps in the center of the camp. Which would supposedly be the safest place. And David decides to invite someone to come with him. And go to the center of the camp right next to Saul. And that's what happens. They go right to the center. And there is Saul. And no one is awake. And there is a spear next to his head. And Abishai looks at Saul. And he looks at the spear. And he says to David. And he states this quite incredibly plausible theological argument. Today God has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I will not strike him twice. He's bragging there. But Abby, and that's what his friends called him, Abby. His logic is very straightforward. 
He's thinking, we've made it safely to this point. It's almost a miracle. And here we are with the man and the means to end his life right in front of us. There go. God has given Saul, your enemy, David, into your hands. Let me have the honor of doing what I do so well and put an end to this once and for all. David knew what was going through Abby's mind. I mean, we'd be crazy not to do this, he must be thinking. This person could kill every one of us. By not doing this, you're putting us all in risk, and he's right. By not killing, by not taking Saul's life, David was paying a very, very high price. Putting himself and others that he loved at enormous risk. Making himself and his compatriots incredibly vulnerable. And here we see the first of two very extraordinary acts of David in our passage. For despite how theological Abishai's argument sounds, David recognized that there's some flaws. And that's what we see in verses 9 and 10, where David gives Abby and us this first lesson, and he shows us what it means to wait on the Lord. Let me read it again. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And do you understand what David is saying? Now, if my news feed is correct... I get the impression that as Americans, we love to follow the royals. We love royal weddings, royal coronations. We even watch royal funerals. But here's one thing we're not so fond of. It's this doctrine called the divine right of kings. And in that sense, we are unique. Because throughout history and most cultures, human beings have given credence to the notion that kings and queens enjoy a special status a divine imprimatur, if you will, and so much more so when it comes to the king of Israel. And David knows this. He knows as the Lord's anointed, God has given Saul a special status, a divine appointment and empowerment. And because of that, David knows, as he says in verse 9, to harm David, to harm Saul, would have made David and his men guilty before the Lord. In other words, At that point, he'd be no different, no less disobedient than Saul himself. And so he tells Abishai this hard lesson that despite everything, despite how easy it would be to justify our behavior, we need to do the right thing. Doing the wrong things for what seems like the right reasons is never part of God's plan And here's the thing. Yes, God has anointed David and promised that he will reign as king over Israel. But that said, God has not given David the right and responsibility to determine when and how that will happen. David has not been given permission to take matters into his own hands. And isn't that so often in those periods of the wilderness, in those periods of waiting what we want to do or what we actually do? I mean, we tire of waiting, so we take matters into our own hands. We settle for a relationship we know that isn't right. We settle for a job that doesn't satisfy. Or we cheat and lie to get ahead. And let me ask you, and I think you know, how many times have we 
messed up because we just didn't wait. William Blakey is right. He says, alas, into how many sins and even crimes have men been betrayed through unwillingness to wait for God's time? And that's why David goes on to say, in essence, this is the Lord's thing. God and God alone has the prerogative, the right and responsibility to decide the length of Saul's life and reign. And right then, David is instructing Abishai and he's instructing us about the folly of trying to force God's providence. Or in other words, David is telling Abby and he's telling us, we've got to wait on the Lord. And David wants Abishai to know, despite how hard it is to wait, God is in sovereignly in control, and he will handle things perfectly in his perfect timing. Now, do you realize how hard this must have been for Abby to hear? I mean, this is insanely difficult. I mean, Abby is offering this quick, effective solution to the problem of Saul, to the problem of their homeliness, to the problem of life lived on the run. And what does David have to offer? Nothing, really. It's not like David could promise this is all going to be over soon. He doesn't know. David has no guarantees to give when and how this is going to happen. I mean, that's the essence of what he shares in verse 10, where he says, All he can promise is that it could happen at any time, in any way. Think about it. It could be that God says, this guy's so wicked, it's going to happen right now, right here. Wham, he's done. Or maybe he'll die of a ripe old age. Or maybe he'll die in battle. David just doesn't know. And here's the key, and here's what we see. Given all that, David has still decided to wait for God's solution to the problem of Saul rather than force his own. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think David knows that if he kills Saul here in this way, he's going to be just another Saul. If he gives in and becomes as self-pitying and self-absorbed and self-righteous and capable of cruelty as Saul has become, by killing Saul, he would just put another Saul on the throne. But more important than that, I believe David knows The waiting on the Lord is the only way to get what his heart really desires. As he says in Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Here is the point. Waiting on the Lord. This is the test that the wilderness always forces upon us. When we're in hard times, when we're in dry times, when we have those longings in our heart that just ache. And yet God seems to be silent. He seems to be distant. He seems to not care. The question will always be, will we wait for the Lord or will we take matters into our own hands? Will we say, my will be done or your will be done? And how difficult this is, we know it. 
we know it because it requires humility. It requires the humility to recognize our limits, to recognize that we are not in control, that we're not calling the shots, that the timing is not up to us. And it requires trust because waiting on the Lord is the confident, disciplined, expectant, active, sometimes painful, clinging to God. It's the continual daily decision to say, God, I will trust you and I will obey you even though the circumstances in my life aren't turning out the way that I want them. And they may never turn out the way that I want them. I'm going to bet on you, God. There is no plan B. That's waiting on the Lord. And it's hard. And here's the obvious question, why? Why, if it's so difficult, does God make us do it? Why does he make us wait? If he can do anything and he's totally in control, why does he not bring relief and answers now when we want them, where we want them, how we want them? And I'm not going to say or pretend to understand everything here. But I do believe this in part. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what we are waiting for. Waiting is not just something we do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. We're not just waiting around. We're waiting on God. And God is doing something in us. Even in that period of the wilderness. Especially in that period of the wilderness. And let me suggest, here's what he's doing. He's making us more like Jesus. And isn't that what we see in David here? And that leads to the second extraordinary thing that David does in our story. I'm going to be very brief here. But I believe it's the answer to the question, how do we get the power, the internal motivation to humbly trust God, to humble ourselves, to trust God in the waiting? And it's here that David shows us what it means to show grace to a fool. What it means to show grace to a fool. Now notice David doesn't simply take the spear from Saul and go away. No, he takes the spear and it says he goes to a high place and he calls down to Saul's encampment. Now let's be clear, this is an incredibly risky thing to do. Yes, he's a distance away, but remember Saul has 3,000 hand-picked men who are ready, poised, and commanded to kill David. And yet, despite the risk, David calls down. And it says, eventually, Saul hears. And it dawns on him what it is he's hearing and what it is that David has done. And Saul says this. He says, David, my son, I've been a fool. That's literally what it says. David, my son, I've been a fool. And it's true. And it's a remarkable admission from a king. Because a fool, biblically speaking, is someone who willfully and destructively is blind to their faults. A fool is someone who does bad things. And because they are blind, they continue to do bad things. And that's certainly true here. If you read the first Samuel, you know that this is not the first time that Saul has attempted to take David's life. In fact, it's not the first time he's come out into the wilderness to pursue after David. And yet, what do we see here? What we see here is David showing grace to a fool. 
who has done bad things, who will continue to do bad things, to someone, in other words, who doesn't deserve David's pardon at all. He's extending extraordinary grace because he's going after Saul's hardness of heart. I mean, from the reverential way that he speaks of him as my Lord and my King, to his non-vindictive speech, he doesn't curse him, he doesn't belittle him, to his returning of the sword. Everything David does is meant to turn Saul's heart. And here's the thing. <laughs> Most of us, I don't, I'll use I statements. I don't often do what David does. No, if someone harms me, I'll either not say anything and just stew on the inside or I'll let it let it out and I'll let them have it and I'll try to make them pay I'll try to make them feel as badly as they've made me feel but David doesn't do that no he's trying to reclaim Saul as I think he knows it's possible to continue to hate in response to grace but it's hard and that's what we see here David extends grace to Saul and Saul's heart starts to melt And don't you see, who does David begin to look like here? In this moment of waiting, God has been doing something in David's life. And more and more, he's acting like the true anointed one. And more and more now, he's pointing us to something greater. He's pointing us to the one for whom David was just the forerunner. He's pointing us, of course... To Jesus, the greater David, the one true eternal king, who, like David, was driven into the wilderness, no place to lay his head. He was struck, he was reviled, but he didn't strike back. He didn't retaliate. He suffered, but he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, and he gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrifice of grace for those who don't deserve it. You see, David risked his life in order to save a fool like Saul. But Jesus Christ actually lost his life in order to save fools like you and like me. And when you see that, when it starts to sink in, it'll melt your heart. And you realize, you'll begin to realize that God isn't just sovereign, but he's good. And he wants to do what's best for you. And that's what truly will give your heart the courage and the humility to wait for the Lord. No matter where in the wilderness we might find ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hard lesson. But most of all, we thank you for amazing grace that we have in Christ. And we pray today, I pray today, that we would sense more and more the grace that is ours because of what Jesus did for us. And in his name I pray, amen.